segment on our podcast uh, it's called the fix and this segment is going to be focusing on uh the eps of uh, exercise physiologists of perform motion um we're going to dive into what they do and how they think about the body and then we'll present case studies weekly um going forward about who they've helped and what they've done and what's different about the way that they've approached this if anything's different so uh, I think today what we're going to go through is just a bit of an introduction on the exercise physiologists of perform motion, who they are, and then what the philosophies are um, of them and how they fit into a powerlifting realm, powerlifting, powerlifting heavy business structure that we have. Yeah. So yeah. welcome, Tom, and welcome, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Um... And Stephen. Hello, Stephen. How are you? Hi. Um, we're fantastic. I can't. <laughs> Wait <laughs> to get into it. Um, I guess we will start off with you guys introduce uh, introducing yourselves as exercise physiologists and why you started in it and what's got you to be interested in what you do today. Uh, and then we'll go on to how your philosophies are formed within Perth. Sure. Um, I guess I'll I'll start yeah. first. Um, so I've been an EP for God, it's almost almost five years now, I think. And, and your name's Tom for people who don't know. <laughs> I am Tom. Tom for people who don't know that listen to our podcast who may not know who's speaking right now. Yeah. This is Tom speaking, everyone. This is Tom. But yeah, like um I guess like yeah, I've been an EP for about five years now. Pretty much started with Kel and Perth almost from the get-go outside of uni. Um, and yeah, like musculoskeletal based training focus and rehab has just been a passion of mine pretty much ever since I got out of uni and just was at the end of uni. Like I find biomechanics, strength training, the integration of both just so interesting. Um, and just finding ways that we can blend little bits of biomechanics to make lifting feel stronger, better, and just make people feel more just like efficient with it, enjoy it more, all those kinds of things. Um, yeah, and very much just as we started to move more and more towards the powerlifting side of things, really leaning into more strength training, especially just finding ways that we can really blend that biomechanical um, application to making people feel stronger on the barbell all the way up into their peaks and helping them survive the barbell too. Because it's so often that we tend to develop niggles and like little injuries, especially as weights gets heavier. And like little changes of biomechanics, although it's not the only answer when it comes to injuries, do have big implications when it's all about keeping load on the bar and making people feel strong on the bar. Um, so yeah, I guess that's a short intro about me, Chris. Yeah, so Chris speaking now. Um, <laughs> Hello, Chris speaking now. <laughs> I've been um, I've been at EP for about three years, uh, three, four years almost. And um, yeah, started working up at Perth last February and it's been awesome since. Grown heaps clinically as an EP, especially in the musk space or the muscle rehab space. Um, it's always something that I've wanted to, I guess, get in more involved in. Um, having done a few years of actual clinical, um, I guess, related exercise physiology work and now diving into more of the athletic and performance-based stuff, it's uh, definitely, I guess, a really good blend of doing the rehab component, but without being too performance heavy focused or strictly performance, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. I think that I've really, I guess, been able to hone in and enjoy a lot more of the biomechanics um, application towards keeping lifters healthy and keeping them strong 
Um, yep. Especially through things like tapers and peaks and stuff where it can get a bit hairy too. So yep. yeah, a little bit about me there. Yeah. Good. Okay, cool. So as a team, what is your philosophies and how do you guys kind of structure things as a team environment? I suppose like the, the big thing we want to always focus on is ways that we can make people feel better if they're experiencing pain or niggles, but keep load on the bar as much as we can. The last yeah. thing we want people to do is feel weak. We don't want people to feel weak. We want to try and keep people feeling like they're progressing, feeling like they're strong, whilst also working on the issues that they present themselves with um, and just trying to blend that combination of the two together. Yeah, definitely. So you guys have also had a, a bit of a, a a hand in rehabbing Steve. Um, we've spoken about this on podcasts before, but I guess Steve's probably a great example of how you guys would uh, deal with the powerlifters. And what are some things that if powerlifters are listening to this as they, as they would be, what are some things that you, you did with Steve that kept him lifting heavy and that you do with powerlifters to make sure that they're able to complete their program. Mm. Yeah. So I guess one of the big things that um, I found <clears throat> helping work with Steve quite a lot is finding movements and strategies that work really well for Steve's body um, and the way that he moves. Cause Steve moves, I guess, quite different to a lot of people that I've seen, um, which is why he's so strong. And I guess finding those movements that really, mitigate the sensations and irritations that he's feeling while being able to keep him moving well for his primary movements. So I guess like, you know, um, when we're talking on the podcast about his hamstrings and adductor, um, finding movements that I guess alleviate the sensations and pain that he was feeling while still being allowing him to, I guess, squat and deadlift. Yeah. I guess if, we, if we're going to talk about it, like, like I'm obviously a powerlifting coach, but we use you guys for rehab primarily, right? And you guys will assist in our programming through accessories and everything to keep our athletes uh, healthy. Um, but an interesting thing that I found that is very common with us as powerlifting coaches is powerlifting coaching is not like it's, it's not really like special, right? When you look at it on a sheet or a piece of paper, it's powerlifting programming, it's, but it's individualized like rehab is but you can prescribe someone let's say a 45 degree uh for something related to like extension somewhere but it's the constraints and the prescription and the manner in which you prescribe it yourself that i've noticed that's different between each kind of client that needs it for a different purpose yeah 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 for sure i guess like like chris was saying like a, a lot of people move very differently and everyone often has like you know strengths and weaknesses which is super normal and like at a certain point with sbd everyone's going to try and move relatively similar like we're going to develop you know similar muscle mass similar sort of movement compensation so there are a lot of things that are consistent we need in accessories and through programs but then like little bits of nuance with depending on maybe someone's got an injury somewhere or maybe someone feels restricted somewhere, just adding mm. that on top of it, like just can make someone feel so much freer and just then let them hammer it with SPD like way harder than normal. Um, yeah. yeah. It's well, like if we have the a person like myself who I I know where I respond in powerlifting programming and what my, you know, special rep ranges is or like this golden micro, it's like some people will need, you know, they'll need to be prescribed a 45 degree in a specific manner you know like raise left foot right foot heel toe or something like that yeah. for them but you know five other people can do 45 degree but it can be five different prescriptions but it's still the same kind of program but it's just their their specific program yeah that makes yeah. sense like there's almost in a certain way we can almost get like a bit of a golden micro with movement prep side things too 
we find yeah. what exercise people need to, you know, feel a little bit stronger, feel a bit freer, we can put that in, slot that in with the programming side micro and just have everything just keep rotating just over and over and over and over. And I guess yeah. that's where like um, negotiables and non-negotiables come in in terms of accessories too. Yeah. So is yeah. your guys' role, is your guys, do you guys think about trying to find that magic micro with your movement prep and with your prescription if someone sees you? Because a lot of a lot of powerlifters have reoccurring stuff, right? Because they all move the same. We all move barbell up, down. We all push barbell up, down. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So like it's the same shit, right? So you'll see, you know, the common things that we see are adductors, uh, glute pain, that hamstring pain, anterior shoulder pain, um, anything else? Knees, I guess, knees. sometimes. Yeah, lower back as well. Yeah. Lots of lower back. Yeah. Uh, Do you have not, – not, not like I'm not asking for a, a, a specific prescription that suits person in that. Do you guys work with people to try and, like, find their magic source on what works with their – movement prep and where you place accessories and stuff like tell us about that yeah so i guess um there definitely are athletes that i guess would have those non-negotiables in terms of their movement uh movement improving exercises i guess we can call them <clears throat> um and i i typically like to find spots in their micro or their their week-to-week -week plan where um they work well to make them feel the best for their lifts. So I guess, for example, like I, I've had an athlete recently who's had a bit of right-sided low back pain um, from lifting. And we found that if we put the uh, right foot elevated um, 45 back extension in before their squat day, they don't have any back pain when they squat. So yeah. finding things like that, that do stay in their program or should stay in their program um, are really, I guess, important to make sure that the lifter can lift as pain-free as possible. Uh, because I guess with the nature of the sport, it's inevitable that a niggle or an irritation will come up. It's just yeah. about trying to manage it as best we can and find these little, I guess, golden nuggets that we can put in the program to make them feel as good and push as hard as they can. Yeah, definitely. I've found that with some of my athletes that they have to have it structured a certain way for them to make them feel good by the end of the week or Mm. So, uh, an RDL has to be and heavy RDL has to be done before your deadlifts and then I've tried to take it out of one of my lifters programs and then she complained of glute pain straight away when I took it out so it wasn't taking away from her deadlift even though it was heavy it was still helping it you know yeah, yeah. do you guys so like if, if a powerlifter comes and sees you and they, they're worried about taking load off the bar what are some strategies that you might do might have with them when you need to take load off the bar because you do sometimes For sure. you know? like i guess the nature of some injuries yeah do require you to physically like just take some weight off let the body almost just have a have a second just to like recover a little bit i guess we have like um we've got a couple of different ways we can do it like sometimes it's a matter of you know pain mitigation or pain management you know using like um, just certain techniques and methods to try and reduce like the pain someone's experiencing. That can be anywhere between like working on externals to using certain styles of training, like isometrics to help someone physically feel better. But also as well, we have access to a lot of certain constraints. So kind of coming back to making small tweaks with um, biomechanics, potentially if we use a constraint or a variation of an exercise that pushes someone into a position that makes them feel better. Um, that's a nice way of still being able to keep something relatively heavy whilst they do that at that time to kind of almost just recover a little bit or like um, take a step back whilst the tissue like heals 
Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely. What did you find with, like, so for you, Steve, you didn't have any hinging in your program. Um, mm -hmm. How did you find with structuring it in, with your, in your program with these guys? Like, did did you find it help, helped straight away or was it hard uh, to do? Definitely it took time. Like I'm someone that doesn't, I won't, I won't reach out to anyone when I feel the first little bit of pain, right? Like I, it doesn't phase me to start with. So it's not like, oh, I, I feel like a little something in my leg. I'm going to go and talk to someone and be like, what could this be? I'm someone that waits till it's completely fucked and then i talked to someone and go like hey like which just happened to be a week out from nuts and i was like hey no it's too late now just tell me what i can do to be good to be able to lift next week yep and then we'll think about it after um so that it was it was pretty easy to integrate it after because i had no like specific timeline to, to be get back on the platform or i wasn't like x amount of week out from from um competing again but it was it was it was easy enough and it was just like i just had to be able to move and for me, I guess as an athlete and a, I suppose higher level athlete as well, to still be able to do what I feel like I was progressing at the same time somewhat. Yeah. So that's like then going through, you know, different variations I hadn't done in a while, like high bar squatted for a while, um, yeah. conventional deadlift, just, just things like that that I hadn't done for a while. So I was like I was hitting like load was very low. I was very limited in what I could hit because of the movements that I was doing. I hadn't been so long because I've been so comp specific in so long. But yep. it was like these are things that I hadn't done in so long so I can progress them because I always kind of want to feel like I'm progressing even though each day was hit and miss whether or not I'd be able to even train kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Was there any load management strategies that you used with Steve that you commonly use with powerlifters, Tom? I suppose like... um the big one in terms of managing load on the bar was using the constraints, especially like the constraints that we use would take weight off the bar just because they were slightly less efficient. So yep. there was a lot of re like really high heel elevated safety bar. There was some high bar, um, less like comp specific movements that allow you just to push the max amount of weight on the bar. Um, we had a little bit of like playing with staggered stance trap bar from memory and some conventional yep. just yep. for certain periods. Um, and yeah, they were just stepping stones at getting back to the, um, the comp lift. So that was the main way we tried to manage load. So we didn't have to change too much in terms of um, the RPEs because the RPEs would still stay kind of high because we had to keep the absolute weight down on the bar due to the, um, the variations. Yeah, cool. And like, um, I was going to ask a question as well. Uh, oh, I've forgotten that. But tell, tell us a little bit about <laughs> how you figure out how much of the movement prep is needed so for someone as like you know we can talk to steve or we can we talk about steve or someone who presents the same way where they have very little hip flexion or hip extension hmm. and some a lot of the powerlifters have that how do you figure out how much of one exercise you give them uh, there's a couple of different ways um so one of the ways we'll be looking at the amount of that time they spend in other positions. So for yep. example, people that spend a lot of time doing high volume, high frequency bench press may respond to more frequent, more um, higher volume hinging, for example, just because they're spending more time in a bench press position, they might feel a little bit better doing that same almost equivalent um, frequency of like a hinge or something along those lines. Um, then there's also as well, just, um, there's almost like a, a certain individual component with how many sets someone feels like they need before they feel free. 
So that can often be found in that initial session where they're just kind of, we're going through the sets. There's not a certain like limit we do initially. The weight's quite low and they're just moving through the movement. They tend to get better each set. So that might initially be in the very first session, they might need eight sets to feel really good. And then over time that drops down to six, drops down to four. And then before you know it, they just have like a maintenance level in their program of just like two to three sets once or twice a week. And it's enough just to maintain everything for that like golden micro. Yeah, so your goal is to find that maintenance and what that maintenance is rather than just hammering the same thing all the time. Exactly, yeah. Like we don't want to take away from the specificity that a program needs. We just want to add as much as we need to at that point and then look at having it in the background as much as we can. Yeah, and I want to go over something really quickly with you. You just said a bench presser might need hinging. Now, what does that mean? Because no one's going to understand why would a bench presser need hinging? So I suppose like with um, bench press, for example, like we spend a lot of time in that position in thoracic extension. Um, yep. Hinging is something that generally trains a little bit more lumbar extension. Like we tend to find it's quite useful at, you know, helping with deadlifts, for example. So yes. um, for someone that's spending a lot of time in thoracic extension, they may not be getting that much stimulus or exposure in lumbar extension as a result. We like to develop movement compensations and we generally get really good at whatever we do lots of. So if we're doing lots of bench press, lots of thoracic extension, our body will naturally try and use that a lot for a lot of like our other movements. So if yep. we try and just like mitigate that and balance it out a little bit for lack of a better word, um, using something like hinging for a bit more lumbar extension works really nicely, but we can use any other exercise. Hinging was just an example. Yep. So by the naked eye, by the layman's eye, you would look at bench press and think that the lumbar was extended. Hmm. But it's not. Not always. It's very technique dependent. And I suppose like the way that we teach bench, for example, is very thoracic extension focused. Um, yep. Trying to get as much as we can there. So usually the better someone is at having a really high thoracic extension arch, we'll, send, we'll see that relationship there. But um, yeah, it is very case dependent. Like some people have a lot of lumbar extension arch, but the way that powerlifting bench press technique is going is leaning much more towards thoracic extension as a whole. Yeah. So you, I would say after talking to you for 20 minutes now that your philosophies kind of reside in, um, give someone what they don't have. Yeah, very much so. And that's how we can have a certain amount of variability in a program um, is just giving them what they don't train very much of and helping them find a way to train that, especially if they find it hard to do. Yeah. I'm pretty sure you were doing over 40 sets of bench press a week when you're a doctor, Went. That was a bit of bad. Mate. Yeah. Mate. Uh, potentially, I can't remember. I still am doing a lot of bench. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You were, remember last mid last year, you were doing like forty two sets of bench a week or some shit like that. Yeah, that was quite a bit at That's one point. That's a lot of time to be spending in thoracic extension. Yeah, it's a lot of bench. Yeah. I guess like I guess that goes back to the theories of that's why sports people always look the same. Yeah. Yeah, like we tend to see different shapes um, in powerlifting, but we can almost kind of move them between like two different kinds of shapes, which makes it a little bit easier. Um, and then it's just a matter of like, if you're one shape, kind of like make sure you can move into the other shape and vice versa. And yeah, definitely. Nice, easy way of having that like variability. Yeah, cool. So like one last thing I, I want to talk about before we finish up today is the post that you put up on Instagram. And I want to touch on it really quickly, uh, the difference between flexion and extension in powerlifting. So you just said it a little bit then, but do you want to just talk about real quick what is that and what that post meant and how that means for powerlifting programming in general? For sure. Um, so like 
Static posture is something that just gives us a snapshot. Mm -hmm. It's not the be all and end all of information, but the post that um, we're talking about is a difference in um, static postures, like at the two ends of the spectrum. So we have one static posture where if we're looking at someone from the side on view and imagine they're standing up tall, um, their like spine looks like a big S shape. They got like a hunchback, they kind of look like a gorilla upper back and they got like a really tight sort of arched lower back. So if yeah. we're imagining that S shape from the side, that very rounded upper back, that's an example of a flexed upper back. It's yep. going into a little bit more flexion because it's rounding forward. And then as a result, to try and keep us upright so we don't fall over because the body's job with posture is just to keep us upright, the yep. lumbar is going to be in a little bit more extension. It's arching forward. So we, that's what creates that S shape through the body. So that's kind of yep. like the gorilla style, more hunchback style posture on one end. And on the other side, we have more of that Dorito style, which is a little bit more sort of like a... Uh, I suppose like a bodybuilder, weightlifter, sort of just like big bench presser. Someone who's very, very good at just like extending and having a super straight spine. So you look yeah. at this person from the side, they'll look dead straight up and down. They'll look like they'll probably have um, like a, a lot of extension through their upper back. Like their upper back is pushing forward, big chest position. And then yep. as a result, their hips are usually a little bit more tucked under. Because if their yep. entire body was in extension, they would fall flat on their face constantly over and over and over. So like they have a little bit more of a tucked hip, even though they may look like their lower back is still arched, it's not as arched as what the gorilla would be. And they're the kind of two different kinds of postures we'll see. So um, over time, we tend to move into one of these or like some sort of degree of one of them. And yeah, just with a lot of the movement style things, we want to make sure that someone can move back and forth between the two somewhere within that movement spectrum. Um, because both of those postures have a good time and place when it comes to SPD. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, awesome. I guess in future podcasts, we'll probably go over that a little bit more because that kind of is the backbone of how you guys look at look at your movement stuff and what people don't have or do have. But uh, I think that's that'll wrap us up for today. So thanks for listening, everyone. We we went Thank through Tom's, Tom and Chris's philosophies on what gets them going with the uh, exercise physiology here. And I think next time we ch catch up with you guys, we'll go over a bit of a case study. Sounds good. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thanks.